Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. I'll be reading just briefly from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 62, our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 62. And we'll turn there in just a moment. But first, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Amen. John is there isolated on the island of Patmos and he's looking into the heavens on the Lord's day full of the Spirit. And he sees by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit the world as it really is. It looks and feels and smells like Rome is in charge, but what Jesus reveals to him in Revelation is that it's not true. That it's really Jesus who's in charge. And he looks in this moment and he sees a dramatic experience where there's a great white throne. And when John says great, he doesn't mean like bigger than the one that you saw, you know, Charles III sitting on. He means so great that the heavens and the earth flee or are obscured by it. This is a throne bigger than the cosmos. This is a big throne. And there's somebody sitting on it. This is a giant judge, full of power and glory and authority, and everyone is gathered before him. All the dead, the dead in the sea, the dead in the graves, the dead in the dry land, those still living on earth, just the whole of humanity from the whole of history is gathered before this great big judge, and there are books. Now, I I know a bunch of you are bibliophiles, and I'm a bibliophile, but these aren't those kind of books. These aren't the books you find in your library. These aren't the books you have on your bedstand. No, these are the books that summarize your life. Everything you ever thought, said, felt, did. And all those books are trotted out. Here's who you are. Here's what you've done. And by God's grace, one more book is brought out. A book unlike all the other books. A book that has no stories of sin. A book that has no record of wrongs. A book that has only names. A book of life. And if your name is in that book, the other book doesn't matter. 
And if you're in that book, the book goes into the lake of fire and you don't. Your sin is consumed and you go free. This is what John sees is the truth about the world. This is the reality of the world. You can live according to your works or you can live according to Christ's. Those are your only two options. Choose you this day. Let's look together at Psalm 62. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 62. This is our Psalm of the Month. 62 months, Psalm 62. We're going to read together Psalm 62, these 12 verses. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, Psalm of David. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth. But inwardly, they curse. Selah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Amen. And amen. Well, this past summer, while I was on sabbatical, I was doing business with my work. I was asking the question, why had I become a pastor? And the corollary, what had happened to those motives since becoming a pastor? Why did I get into this and why am I still in it? As I was wrestling through the answers to those questions, I found some help from a pastor now long dead. Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in Wales in 1927, though he spent 30 years preaching in Westminster Chapel in London. He called that pulpit the most romantic place on earth. He loved to preach, and he loved to preach there. In fact, he would give himself over those 30 years so enthusiastically, so passionately to his preaching that he would describe it himself later in life as logic on fire. 
And he would win the appellation as the 20th century's prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon had that before him in the 1800s. But for the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones was known as the prince of preachers. He retired in 1968. His health was giving out. He lived on for 13 more years, and over that decade of the 70s, people would often ask him, aren't you sad that you're no longer preaching? And he would say, no, I've never lived to preach. It's not my identity. It's not my self-worth. I have Christ. I don't need preaching. In fact, later in life, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, I have found that prayer is a suitable substitute for preaching. I am content to pray when I cannot preach. At last, this prince of preacher grew so weak and so feeble, he lost the powers of speech. Once the prince of preachers, now a mute, he sat alone in his hospital room, mourning all the death that he had gone through, waiting his own. His nurse, who had heard him preach years before, came into the room to give him his daily medicine And he shook his head no. And the nurse explained why it was medically important that he take his medicine. And he shook his head no. And the nurse explained why it was theologically important that he take his medicine. And he shook his head no. And finally, in frustration, the nurse said, It saddens me to see you so weak, so weary, so sad. Martin Lowe joins, summoned all his oxygen... All his strength and what is probably his final earthly words said, no, not sad. You see, he didn't find his worth in his work. He didn't find his worth in his preaching. He didn't find his happiness in what he had contributed to the world. He found it in who Christ is and what Christ has done. He had learned the lesson of Psalm 62. The gospel truth for us, the good news to which we must cling and upon which we must build our lives. Jesus is the reason for your job. Whether that is the job that pays the bills, whether that is the job that you do because you said I do, whether that is the job you do because there's children in the house, whatever the job is, That job exists not for you, but for Jesus. He is the reason for the job. And so from Psalm 62, let us learn to do our work patiently and prayerfully. Jesus is the reason for your job. Do your work patiently and prayerfully. Let's begin at the beginning. Notice in the subtitle that like so many psalms, this psalm is directed to the chief musician. That is that Levite who led the choir in praise in the tabernacle and temple. We don't have Levites, tabernacles, or temples. But we have a chief musician, and his name is Jesus. He stands at the head of the choir, which is the whole congregation. And he leads us in singing this psalm that was dedicated to him that we might know him. That is to say, this psalm is about Jesus. This psalm is in praise to Jesus. But this is also the psalm that Jesus leads us in singing. We sing to him, we sing about him, and we sing with him. Now this psalm, though, has a historical antecedent. It comes from the pen of Jeduthun and David. There is a co-authorship here. And we're not quite sure what the relationship is. 
We know from Chronicles that Jedithin is one of those chief musicians. He's one of the choir directors. He is one of the Levites who leads the worship in the tabernacle under David. We also know from Chronicles that Jeduthun is one of the few sons of prophets who with David write psalms. There's Haman the Ezraite, there's Asaph, there's the sons of Korah. Each of these authors gather with David to write the psalms, to put praises into the mouths of the people of God. Jeduthun was one of that elite group. He's called a prophet in Chronicles. I'm not quite sure what they were doing together. Not quite sure what they were doing in this psalm. But I have a speculation. And I hope it frames the psalm for you. I suspect that David one day summoned his prophetic counsel. They were reviewing the different psalms they were each working on. And when it came time for Jeduthun to present what he had worked on... He presented Psalm 62. And he said to David, You know how you have all those wonderful psalms about your sufferings under Saul? And David said, Yeah, that was a spiritually rich time for me. And Jeduthun said, Yeah, I thought so. So I wrote this psalm about your time fleeing from Absalom. And David went, You did what? I don't know if that's how it went. I don't know what their relationship is. All I know is this is a very brave psalm. And David probably needed a good friend like Jeduthun to help him sing it. And together, this is what they sing. Truly, my soul waits silently for God. He waits for God in the midst of whatever trouble. We've not been introduced to it yet. Jeduthun and David begin with the conclusion. They begin with the end of the matter. Truly my soul waits silently for God. From Him comes my salvation. This is the conclusion to the experience. The theological bedrock on which the psalm will be built. My soul silently waits for God. In the words of Inigo Montoya, I hate waiting. Do we not? We want to be busy. We want to be working. We want to be thinking. Now, the way I solve most problems is that I go and do research. Somebody asks me a question, it's beyond what I can handle. I go find every book ever published on the subject and I read them. Ironically enough, I'm the type of person that when I get done reading them, I'm content and I just walk away. I don't ever feel like I have to do anything with it. I now know knowledge is enough. Now, many of you, that's not the answer. You get presented with a problem and you want to do something about it. So you get busy trying to work and to solve. For those of us who love to research, for those of us who love to work, whatever the case may be, we are to learn this lesson from David and Jeduthun. They wait. Their answer to the problem is they wait. They wait for God. But they don't just wait, they wait silently for God. There is a hush and a stillness. According to Psalm 46, they are still, that they might know he is God. According to the story of Jesus with his disciples in the storm on the sea, all the raging torrents within them are hushed. That they might ask the question, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? 
There is an awareness to God, an awakeness to God that only comes in quiet. Notice that they wait for God and they wait silently for God. What is the first thing you see when somebody stops at the bus? When somebody gets on the tee? What's the first action of every human being in the 21st century? Hand in the pocket, pull out the cell phone. We hate silence. Blaise Pascal, 500 years ago, said, most of human problems come from the fact that we can't sit quietly in our own room. 500 years ago, he hadn't seen anything yet. Oh, we hate waiting. We hate waiting quietly more. And yet the conclusion of the matter is, my soul waits silently. He says, my soul, by this David does not mean that internal being, that internal self, that thought, that feeling. That's how we use soul. No, in the Hebrew culture, soul is going to mean the totality of his existence. His life, his energy, his force. Truly, my whole life is waiting in silence for God. Truly, all of the energy and passion and vigor in my body is waiting silently for God. He's not thinking for the solution. He's not speaking for the solution. He's not working for the solution. He's not running after the solution. No, his whole being is in repose. He is waiting silently for God. You want to be countercultural? Sit quietly and think about God for 15 minutes. You want to change the world? Sit quietly and think about God for 30 minutes. This is the conclusion. This is the solution to the problem. A silent soul awaiting God. Why is this the solution? Why is putting the self on pause... Why is suppressing the human ambition the solution? David gives the answer in verses 1 and 2. Because from him comes my salvation. Because he is my rock, my salvation, my defense. The answer to our problem is God. Notice first that he sends salvation. That from God coming into our world is the solution to the problem. The sin and the suffering and the sorrow that is immersing around me, that is hushing me and stilling me, has an answer. It's movement. But it's not my movement. It's his movement. I am still and silent waiting for God. And he is coming to me. He comes and brings salvation. Notice that this salvation is not an abstract noun. He sends his salvation, you know, justification, sanctification, adoption. That's not what David says here. He says in verse 2, he is my salvation. To put the two lines together, when God sends salvation, he sends himself. He comes to us and he saves us. He says also, he is my rock and my refuge, my tower, my defense. By, David, by this, David means that when God comes to me, I cannot be moved. When God is with me, I am upon a rock and no one can reach me. When God is with me, I am in a tower and shelter and no one can reach me. I cannot be greatly moved. I appreciate that he says greatly moved because, of course, we are sometimes moved, are we not? 
David is, in fact, in this situation being moved. But he's not being greatly moved. Because God has come to him. Because God is with him. And by waiting silently for God, what David has awakened to, what David has realized, is that he is not alone. God has come to him. So what's the problem that caused this conclusion? What's the trouble that has led to this realization? Verses 3 and 4. How long will you attack a man? You'll be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. This third line probably modifies the first line. How long will you attack a man in order to make him a leaning wall and a tottering fence? David is referring to a problem where there are many enemies who are seeking to move him. Who are seeking to attack him and knock him down. Seeking to cause him to lean over, to totter, and to fall. He doesn't mean this merely metaphorically. In verse 4, they consult together to cast him down from his high position. What is David's high position? He is king. He is referring to Absalom's rebellion. Absalom has gathered together this mighty consultation of enemies who have now attacked David and driven him from Jerusalem. They delight in lies. Absalom would go to the gate and would say, whispering to the people, Oh, David won't give you justice. Oh, you can't trust him to be fair. If I were king, I would give you justice. He delighted in lies and polluted the hearts of the people. He blessed with his mouth. He went to David and he said, Father, when I was in exile, I made a vow to God that I would go to Hebron where you were crowned, and I would offer a sacrifice to the Lord in praise to him if we were ever reconciled. He blessed David with his mouth, pretending to be at peace with his father. But inwardly he cursed. He went to Hebron and proclaimed himself king over Judah and Israel. He promoted himself to the position of king. David's problem is that he's being dethroned. David's problem is is that he's being cast out of his palace and he's having to flee from Jerusalem. Let me put it in terms that we can relate to. David is getting fired and kicked out of his house. He is jobless. He is homeless. He is on the run from his own child. He's kind of in a bad way, yeah? It is this circumstance about which David says, I will not be greatly moved. You can throw me out of the kingship. And I don't consider it going very far. You can throw me out of my house. And I don't consider it going very far. I'm not greatly moved by this. Because I have gone from ruling Israel with Christ. To running from my son with Christ. The whole point of his job was Jesus, not himself. David wasn't in this office for self-promotion. David wasn't in this office to delight himself in privilege or in power. He was in this office to glorify and enjoy God. And you know what? You can do that in the wilderness. He was in the office to serve God. And you know what? You can do that anywhere. You can do that down by the river in Jordan. You don't need a palace in Jerusalem. Realizing that the thrust and aim of all his life's work was to glorify and enjoy God, David is here unafraid and not greatly moved. 
He is established, though his son leads a rebellion against him. For this reason, David then returns in verse 5 to the main theme of the psalm, but with a slight variation. My soul waits silently for God alone. This phrase seems almost the same as verse 1. Having faced the problem of being bereft of everything valuable and cherished in life, David now has to speak to his soul. Notice that it's no longer an indicative or statement of fact. It's not David saying as a conclusion, I have learned to wait silently for God. No, in verse 5, we have David's first reaction to Absalom's rebellion. My soul, wait silently for God. David did not naturally, as some superhuman saint, respond to these troubles perfectly. Rather, in verse 5, he had to command his soul into silence. You, of course, know what David's response would have been. Summon my counsel, let us make plans. Summon my military, let us get ready for battle. David would have been tempted like all of us to gather together all our resources and all our powers in order to employ them to the solving of the problem. He has to, in faith, step back. He has to, in faith, command his soul. No, wait silently for God. My hope is from him. My expectation is from him. I anticipate him solving this problem. How is David able to move from the realization that he's about to lose everything in life, that he's about to become a homeless beggar fleeing from his murderous son? How does David go from that problem to being at peace and able to sleep at night in the wilderness under the stars? It's this step, this first step. You know what? I'm not going to solve this problem. I'm going to let God solve this problem. I'm going to quiet my soul. I'm going to silence the thoughts, silence the hands, silence the mouth, silence the phone, and I'm going to wait for God. But David doesn't just wait for him. He waits expectantly for him. I'm going to be busy. Silent, but busy. Waiting, but not idle. I'm going to be looking for God. Where is he? Where is he moving? Where is he working? What is he doing here? What is he doing in this business? Here is an essential truth for us in our lives. You're not God. Here is an essential truth for our lives. We need to awaken to the reality. Jesus was at work in your life before you were. Jesus was at work in your job before you were. Jesus was here first. And he'll be here after you're done. He's the one doing all the stuff. He's the one building the business. He's the one building up the kingdom. He's the one tearing down nations and empires. He's the one doing this work we call human history. He's writing the story. And so often we try to get in his way. And David says, no, not me. I've learned my lesson. I'm going to step back. I'm going to silent my soul and I'm going to watch. Where's God? What is he doing? Let me try and see his work. For David realizes he is my rock, my salvation, my defense. Notice here, I shall not be moved. 
David has advanced in his confidence. Before he says, I would not be greatly moved. Now he says, I'm not going to be moved at all. I will not be shaken. The closer I come to a stillness before God, the more deeply I am silent and the more fervently I am awake and alert to God, the less I move, the less I am shaken. My stability is resting on my proximity to the rock in defense, which is God. Notice in verse 7 that David extends this principle specifically to his royal experience. In God is my salvation. He is the one in whom I'm kept safe from all my enemies. David didn't outlast Saul. He didn't outlast Goliath. He didn't outlast all his enemies because he was a great military commander. But because he was a man after God's own heart, because he was in God, he was invested in knowing God. He was invested in being in communion with God. We might say it in a rather, you know, sort of pedantic way. David is looking back on his life and saying, I was busy praying. God was beating all my enemies. David was busy with prayer. God was busy winning the battle. Further, he says, God is my glory. In whom is my glory? David here perhaps is reflecting on his experience in 2 Samuel when he brings in the Ark of the Covenant. There's a tremendous visual of how David understands that God is his glory. When David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he's wearing a white linen ephod. In our modern day language, that's a long white t-shirt. It's a long white t-shirt that goes down to his knees. Do you know what kings normally wear in grand parades when all the army and elders are assembled and all the nation is celebrating and sacrifices are being offered? And I mean, it is like the Israelite festival to end all festivals. It is the biggest celebration in the history of the nation. The king wears a crown. The king wears a giant purple robe. The king wears all his jewelry, all his bling, and he rides on his great big stallion. That's what Michael, his wife, says to them. Great job, king. Way to go out there and look like a king. David went out in a white t-shirt. And his answer to her is, I wasn't going to wear anything that was going to keep me from worshiping God. I had to jump, leap, twist, twirl. I had to express with all of my body the fullness of joy I found in the presence of my God. Kingship stuff just gets in the way. And David set it aside voluntarily. This is what David has learned about his work. The glory of the work is not in wealth. The glory of the work is not in paraphernalia. The glory of the work is not in prestige. It's in the fact that it worships God. It brings glory to God. It blesses His name. So the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. David is not trusting in all that the kingship has for him. He's not even trusting in the kingship. He is trusting in God. For that reason, he turns to his people, the nation. And he says as their king, almost as if he was, you know, as he was departing the city of Jerusalem, his loyal soldiers and his loyal advisors are gathering around him. And as they are fleeing from rebellious Absalom and all his men, David says to his, his few loyal followers, trust in him. Trust in God. Oh, my people, 
Do not be loyal to me for my sake. I can't save you. David lives up to this. He refuses to fight Absalom. Just as he refused to fight Saul. Just as he had learned long ago, I will not make myself king and I will not keep myself king. These things that are so important to me are the gifts of God. I will wait for him in silence. He says to his people, trust God, not me, to get you through this trouble. He says in like manner, don't trust our advisors. You remember what Ahithophel did, right? He betrayed David and sided with Absalom. Don't trust your king. Don't trust your counselors. Don't put your faith in princes. He says, pour out your heart before him. He is our refuge. David leads by example. My faith is in God, not in my work. My faith is in God, not my counselors, not my army. Come, people, follow me. Let us together pray. These are the most precious and important words any leader can ever say. Let us pray. Whatever the problem, whatever the sin, whatever the sorrow, whatever the trouble, the right response from good and godly leaders like David is to say, here is our first best response. Here is our chief work. Let us pray. Let's pour out our hearts before him. He is our refuge. Let us expect him to do something about this. Let us anticipate with hope he will do something about this. David then addresses his people with two warnings, verses 9 and 10. First, he says to them, do not trust in men, in humans. See, the men of low degree are a vapor. They're a breath, an exhale. I mean, how much can you do with an exhale? I mean, many of us can't even put out the candles that, you know, are on our birthday cake because we've got too many on there. It's like hard to put out, you know, over 40, you know, candles. Breath doesn't do much. Exhale doesn't do much. I mean, I exhale for 40 minutes and all of us forget what happened an hour later. Exhale doesn't do much. David says low men are like an exhale. They don't amount to much. They're just gone like that. Don't trust them. Don't put your faith in the poor and the needy. They have nothing to offer. Then he turns around and he says, hey, but don't put your faith in those who have high degrees either. Because those who are super smart and super well-educated and full of power and privilege, those who have been elected to office, they're a lie. They are robed in all this splendor that seems to communicate that they are something other than a breath. And it's just not true. The wealthiest guy in the world is nothing but an exhale. The most powerful person in the world is nothing but an exhale. They're all a lie. Their appearance of power and strength and privilege, it's a delusion. Don't trust humans. They are but an exhale. Whether they are great or small. In fact, David concludes in verse 9, if you were to put them all together, if you were to put all the low and all the high and all of humanity together on one giant scale, you would find that the sum total of the parts is lighter than the individuals. The sum total of the parts is less 
than a sigh in exhale. Every individual human is nothing but an exhale. And the sum total of all human individuals everywhere is less than an exhale. Do you guys feel the impact of his argument? When we do our work, we must do it in a way that doesn't put our faith in humans, but in God. Likewise, David says, do not trust in oppression, nor vainly vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Initially, our impression from this teaching is that David is telling his army, his loyal followers, inasmuch as we cannot have faith in other humans, but only in God, we should not have faith in sin. But riches, of course, are not themselves sinful. Oppression is sinful. Robbery is sinful. Riches are not. So it seems rather that David's command here to his people is don't trust in power. Just as they should not, in verse 9, trust in people, so in verse 10, don't trust in power. Don't trust in your power to oppress others, your ability to get the upper hand. This is something that is so very key for everyone in leadership. Just because you can out-argue someone doesn't mean you should trust in it. Just because you are smarter than someone doesn't mean you should trust in it. Your ability to push others down does not establish you. Oppression is not the path to success. Likewise, do not vainly hope in robbery. Your ability to take from others is by no means a virtue. Your power to seize others and to push them down in oppression. Your power to seize possessions and to amass wealth and privilege. It's not a good thing. Likewise, even if you are blessed with riches, if you increase with privilege... Even if you have all the good things in life and you have thrived and succeeded in everything, do not set your heart on them. They will deceive you. They will mislead you. Lydia and I went to a lecture that is extremely relevant to this psalm uh, two weeks ago. Arthur C. Brooks recently wrote a book called From Strength to Strength. He doesn't mention Psalm 84 once in the book. But he does talk about all the people who have had the most success in life. And he points out that time and time and time again, counterintuitive as it is, they all end their lives depressed and suicidal. Their success did not make them happy. It just doesn't. Triumph on this earth doesn't make us happy. Jesus does. We cannot trust in the accumulation of power. We cannot trust in the accumulation of success and achievement. We cannot trust in the humans around us who are pursuing likewise these ends and these aims. No, Arthur C. Brooks points out that the great irony, the great truth, is that if you are going to end your life happy, You are going to have to lose your life. You're going to have to willingly surrender achievement and success and ambition. You're going to have to shrink your life and be more willing to accept a smaller existence. Do not set your heart 
on riches, on triumph. David, as he walks up the hill with his army fleeing from Absalom, sets before him this great hope. Look to God, expect God, trust God, not your own achievements, not your own skills, not one another. And so then David says in verse 11, as if a capstone or summary for his life. Indeed, these words could have been etched on David's headstone. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. This is a tremendous statement on David's part. It recalls that day in 1 Samuel 17 when we were first introduced to him as a young man. He marched out into the valley to face Goliath, that great heroic conquest that set him onto the path of public service. And there, David declared to Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord. From the beginning of his days to the end of his days, David is a man after God's own heart. By that we mean a man who is resolved to receive from God whatever is in God's heart for him. A man willing to submit to God's will for his life. Who says the battle belongs to you. Which means if I die, I die. Which means if I'm king, I'm king. Which means if I'm cast out as king, I'm cast out as king. But it all belongs to God. It's his battle. David is likewise saying, twice I have heard this. In family worship last night, we reviewed all the possibilities of which two events David is referring to. I have no idea. Maybe he's referring to his, his, his anointing by Samuel. In which Samuel said to him, God will make you king. You will not make yourself king. God will make you king. Perhaps he's referring to the time that he almost killed Nabal, that fool. And Abigail came out to him and said, no, don't do it, David. You don't make yourself king. God makes you king. You live in submission to God, not taking to yourself power. Perhaps he's referring to other situations. There are so many of them where David was taught power belongs to God. And so too does mercy. By this, I think David means first that the power and mercy of God belongs to him and is given to us sovereignly and freely. I think by this, David also means that the power and love by which we do our work are the gift of God. You see, in order to be king, David needed power over his people. He also needed love from his people. And that power over his people and that love from his people are both the gift of God. His job is a gift from God. His ability to do his job is a gift from God. The power and the love by which we do our work is not from within It's from above. It comes to us in Christ. And so that leaves us with the final line. For you render to each one according to his work. God repays every human being according to your work. What is your work? Is it what you have done in your strength and wisdom? 
you will be repaid accordingly. Is it what you have done in the power and love of God in Christ, you will be repaid accordingly? Do you depend on God to do your work? Do you depend on God to give you the power to fulfill your responsibilities? Do you depend on God to give you the love to keep going, to keep serving in your work? What is the source, fountain, and origin of your work? One final illustration. There is no work any of you have done greater than this one. You made a child. It's the magnum opus of humanity. G.K. Chesterton said, all callings, all jobs, all works serve that one calling, motherhood. Think about it. I mean, like everything we do is to feed kids. Whether they're our kids or somebody else's kids, the entire American economy thrives on feeding kids. Rises and falls with it. It is the purpose that we should spend our lives giving those lives away to someone else. It is the great and highest end of humanity given to us in the cultural mandate in the very beginning, the very first words God spoke to a human. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And yet, over the last two weeks, we have brought that great work. Two little humans up front here have splashed some water on their heads and said the words. And what is the first thing each of those parents are asked when they come and they present before God, before you, in covenant of baptism, their life's great work? I ask them, do you believe this child is God's, entrusted to your care? It's not their work. It's not our work. It's God's. We don't make life. We don't sustain life. God makes life. God sustains life. Beloved, Jesus is the reason for our job, whatever that job is. Jesus is the reason for our work, whatever that work is. So please do it patiently and prayerfully. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for these sweet truths from the psalmist. We thank you for the hope that our work is not in vain. That indeed the works of our hands, according to the prayer in Psalm 90, is established by you, O God. That you are the one who is doing the work in this world. And that you have given us the great privilege of working with you in this world. Of keeping in step with the Spirit through patience and through prayer. That we might do the works of Christ that he has called us to do. We give you thanks, O God, that you are the great worker and we are the co-worker in Christ. Father, write these truths upon us and empower us to live them out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's Psalm 62. Let's sing it. Turn with me and your Psalters to Psalm 62, Selection A.